glad you're here this morning, and uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we have been in that series for the last several weeks. We've got a few weeks left. Um, Mark Johnson's actually going to be bringing the message in two weeks from Nehemiah 9, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. Really cool chapter of Nehemiah's worship to God, the people's worship to God. Um, and just remember, our series title is Trouble and Disgrace. God's people, the book of Nehemiah, find themselves in trouble and disgrace. And this week, what we want to look at is the fact that what got them out of their trouble and grace is what God accomplished. That, that, that what God, what, is, what was accomplished by God is what got them out of their trouble and their disgrace. So often when we're in trouble or we're in disgrace, we look for ways to fix it, right? And we just make our situation worse. <laughs> we manipulate things. We try to do things. Well, I'll do this, and then I'll do that, and then I'll do that. And by the time we wake up and look around, we go, oh my goodness, I'm in a deeper pit and hole than I anticipated to be in. I'm not fixing anything. I'm just making things worse. God, because of his word and because of who he is, he sweeps in. He recognizes the trouble and the disgrace that's been passed down to us all the way from Adam, from Genesis, and God is stepping into that, and throughout the scriptures, it's the story of God accomplishing what only he can accomplish and doing what only he can do to change you and me, to change human hearts. And so, a few passages of scriptures to remind you about the story. Remember, Nehemiah, the God's people have been enslaved for now 70 years. They've been sent back to the promised land. They've gotten to rebuild their temple under Ezra, but the walls of Jerusalem, the city is still open to marauders and thieves. It's still a mess. And interesting that God asked them to rebuild the temple, rebuild the worship before you rebuild the walls. That's the opposite of what we do in our world. We build the walls first, then we build the valuable things inside of it. With God, he's like, you've got to get worship right. And so with Nehemiah, he's serving a wicked king. He's a slave. He didn't ask to be a slave. He didn't do anything to deserve to be a slave. It was just passed down to him to be a slave. He is a slave. He is the cupbearer of the strongest king, maybe one of the greatest, definitely one of the greatest empires to ever exist, the Persian Empire. And he is the cupbearer to the king, which means he's responsible to make sure the king doesn't drink poison. That's his job. And his head is always on the line. And it says, the words of Nehemiah, when I was in the fortress, oops, sorry, I got clicker happy. When I was in the fortress of Susa, that's like the retirement villa, not the retirement, I'm sorry, the summer villa for the king. It's the nice place he goes. It's like Florida for kings, okay? That's, that's where Susa is for this. I was in the fortress and Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah. I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant. That's the group of people that went back after 70 years fulfilling the prophecy that God said, you'll be disciplined for 70 years and then I'll send you back to the land. You may be under some discipline right now in your life. Has it been 70 years? 70 years of discipline. And the people saw that in this stage, they begin to see that it was good, that God taught us a lesson, and we have to live differently. And it goes on, it says, they said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The king granted my requests, 
for I was graciously strengthened by my God. It's interesting, and I'll say it over and over again, that, that Nehemiah's response, being a slave, being mistreated, not being in the privileged class at all, his response was not to, I'm gonna take up a sword, I'm gonna kill this king, I'm gonna make things right. His response was to weep and be broken and cry out to his God, and he does that in this book over and over and over again. And isn't it interesting that in our lives, and especially in the church today, that's almost always the last thing we resort to. We've tried everything, and oh, yeah, now I need to pray. Because I've failed so miserably, now I cry out to God. Nehemiah is not that way. Nehemiah quickly turns and cries out to his God and trusts him. And that's the beauty of Nehemiah's heart. When he got to the city, he said he didn't tell anyone about what God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. We talked about like, you know, the definition of God laying something on your heart, that it has to be according to his word, right? That, that needs to be confirmed by God and by others. And so I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned down. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's walls so that we will no longer be a disgrace. He looks at the people now and he says, you guys are in trouble and, and it's a disgrace. We need to do something now. Let's cry out to God. Let's, let's move. Let's work. So it's not just you weep and mourn and do nothing. It's get up out of your weeping and mourning and move forward with what God's asked you to do. And no, it's not going to be an easy task. It's going to be hard and it's probably going to require you to go back and mourn some more and weep and get up the next day. He goes on and he says, chapter 5, they begin to be persecuted. They run into problems. And he says, don't be afraid. Remember and respond to God. He said, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and your homes. So it's not just mourn. It's not just, well, I'm just going to kind of build my little life over here and ignore everything that's going on around me. He says, no, fight for what God wants, which is the hearts and souls of men and women. This is a beautiful book that lays out a lot of where we can find ourselves today. So we pick up the story. They've been rebuilding the wall. They've rebuilt the wall about halfway at this point. And now Nehemiah 6, 1 and 2, it says, When Sanballat, Tobiah, and Jeshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that no gap was left in it, now they've finished the wall. They got to half. Now they've rebuilt the wall. They said it couldn't be done. It wasn't possible. And when we go back and look at how Nehemiah did it, then he made every family work on their wall in front of their house. You work on you. Oh, by the way, if you don't, the enemy's coming through your house to kill your family first, and then we'll get over after you're dead to maybe push them back out. So you want to rebuild your wall or not? And in the church, we have to be about that. We have to check our own hearts, check our own lives so that we are a blessing to the body of Christ. We're protecting the people of God. We're helping grow. And when we're struggling, we ask for help because last week we saw where Nehemiah put every man with a sword and he had trumpeters stationed on the wall so that when someone got in, tru in trouble, the trumpet blew and they came to their aid. Like this book is amazing when you dig down and see God's heart for his people and Nehemiah's heart for his people. And he said, though at that time I had not installed the doors in the gates. So the gates were rebuilt. That's the first thing they rebuilt. Then they rebuilt the walls, but they haven't gotten the doors up yet, right? Like, like the doors on the gates are still kind of open. And then it says, Sanballat and Jeshem sent me a message, come. Let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. I love that Ono, right? Oh no, here it comes. 
Like, I love that that's the word used here. I just laugh at it. Like, I find scripture funny. I don't know about you. I find scripture very hilarious. I think God has an incredible sense of humor. And if you'll take the time to read through scripture, you'll laugh. Because there are some moments when he just says some things or does some things, and you're like, like a donkey talking to a prophet. That's just hilarious, right? He's going down the road. He's beating his donkey, and the donkey's finally had enough and turns and goes, stop it. Like, a donkey just spoke. Like, this isn't Shrek. This is like the Bible, right? I mean, it's just funny stuff that God can do. And this is one of those, the Ono Valley. So it looks like, hear me out here, God's people are now having success. They've rebuilt the wall. They've proven to their enemies, they've proven to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Jeshurun, who've been persecuting them, our God is with us. And so now they come in, and they're not coming to fight now. You want to know why? Because they can't beat them. They got walls now. All the men are carrying swords. They're prepared to fight. They know they can't beat them with a frontal assault, so let's go behind them. Let's pretend like we want peace. Let's pretend like, oh, I'm with you. Oh, I'm so proud of you that you built your wall. Oh, it's just so wonderful what you're doing. But hey, come and do this with me. Come and do that with me. See, that's how we always get suckered in as believers, isn't it? And Jesus, when he walked the earth, went all the way to the cross, never being suckered, never being, never sinning, never being taken off guard, never allowing anyone to tell him what to do, but listening completely to his heavenly father at every turn. It's amazing when you think about that. And, the, and this is how the enemy always gets us. We'll see in just a minute through some New Testament passages, this is what they tried to do to Jesus. They tried to come along beside him, behind him. They tried to prop him up like, oh yeah, we like you, we like you. Now come and do what we want you to do. And Jesus was like, no. I do what my father says to do. I do what scripture says to do. I don't do what you tell me to do. Now, if you're telling me to do what Scripture says to do, God's placed you in authority, then I'll do that, which is why Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross obeying every earthly ruler and authority. He went to the cross as a slave like Nehemiah to serve us just like Nehemiah was a slave serving his people. He went all the way because he knew this life isn't the end. There's a life coming. And here we have these guys, oh, come on, yeah, be my, come on, hang out. Look at what Nehemiah says. But they were planning to harm me. <laughs> Duh! These guys have been casting insults, they've been rude, they've been jerks, they've done everything they can to frustrate God's people to the point of rallying other nations against them, and now they're acting all friendly? When that happens, you should scratch your head and be like, I don't know about this. They, oh, they must be changed now. They must, no, they're going to use you. And Nehemiah knows it. He knows. He's like, I want God's people to love God, not try to protect what we've built. And sure, it would be easy for me to go and like treat these guys well and make a treaty now that we have walls because now we have a position of strength to get along with them. Nehemiah doesn't do it. Because he sees what's getting ready to happen. And Jesus didn't do it either. Look at this in Matthew 22. This is when Jesus, at the end of his ministry, he's heading towards the cross. He's getting ready to go to his death. He knows that the end has come, that he's lived 33 and a third years, and it's over. 
that he's going to do what scripture has said needs to be accomplished for all of eternity, that when Adam and Eve were clothed with animal skins, he's going to pay the price, and we take communion as a representation of Christ's body and blood for us, shed so that we could be covered, and God could look down and not see our sin, but to see the covering of his son. When the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. They were trying to get him caught in what he said. This is what always happens. They sent sent their disciples to him with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You defer to no one for you don't show partiality. I love the flattery, right? When someone comes to you with flattery like this, you should be panicked. You should, like, every red flag and light, indicator light on your dash should be going off when someone comes to you like this. And, oh, you're the best, greatest, wonderfulest, almost, oh, like, you should be like, nah, you don't really know me if you think that, because I'm really kind of bad. Like, I tell people all the time, just talk to my wife for about 10 minutes. You'll find out how great I really am. You'll find out. Just ask her, so how's Matt doing this week? Well, let me tell you, not real sure, you know? He did this and this. He confessed, but ah, we're still working on it. Like, and that's a beautiful thing, to be humbled to one another, to, to, to iron sharpening iron in a marriage or relationship. And it says, these guys come in with flattery, and then it says, tell us, therefore, what you think. They don't want to know what he thinks. See, that's the other trap. People get on Facebook, oh, tell us what you think. They don't want to know what you think. They already know what you think. They're trying to get you to say it so they can then accuse you and blast you and rip you apart. Jesus has spoken enough. He's already called these guys whitewashed tombs. He's called them dead men. He's called them fathers of their sons, or their sons of the father's devil, right? The devil's their father. He's he's already said all this to these guys, and they think that by coming and flattering him, Like, he's going to change his message. Oh, well, you like me now. Okay, well, then everything's fine. No, there's still some things we need to deal with in your heart before I'm ready to have a relationship with you. And here's where they go. And this is where we always get caught. It is where Christians are being caught today. What court cases should we take to the Supreme Court? And what should we fight for? And this and that. And the government and our rights. Tell us, therefore, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Let's get you in a political conversation, right? And we as Christians, oh, there's nothing more we love than a political conversation. Jesus doesn't engage. He gives them God's politics. I love this. He looks and he goes, but perceiving their malice, Jesus said, why are you testing me? Now, he could have just stopped there. He doesn't. He calls them out. Why are you testing me? Hypocrites. This is in public. In front of hundreds, if not thousands of people during the Passover. And he is publicly saying, these religious leaders, these guys who are making the sacrifices, selling you sheep, selling you doves, to have the forgiveness of sins, they're hypocrites. They're they're sons of their father, the devil. That's not nice. Jesus is just saying the truth. I have to warn you because I care about you. And he says, you're hypocrites. Show me the coin used for the tax. Because there was a certain coin you'd have to buy and use for the tax. Show me the coin used for the tax. So they brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is on this? He asked them. 
Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, therefore give back to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Caesar made this money. Caesar's going to be dead someday and the money's going to be worth nothing. You could have an entire trunk full of Confederate money right now. You know how much it's worth? Nothing. I mean, maybe some historical value. But other than that, it's not worth anything. You know why? The Confederacy doesn't exist anymore. They were beaten. Their money and currency doesn't exist. There's no value behind it because there's no force behind it enforcing the, the, the value. Jesus knows this. He's like, yeah, give to Caesar what he wants right now. He didn't get to keep it. It's all going to be taken from him. And we can be the same way where it's like, this is mine. It's like, that's not yours. That's just temporary. And then we get so mad when things are taken from us or when people do He goes on and he says, when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. They were done. They're like, we're done. We're, we're, we cannot trap this guy. Doesn't stop there. The same day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came up to him and questioned him. Now another group of religious leaders comes up. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees because he told them, you're idiots, there is a resurrection, and here's why. They tried to trap him with a question they couldn't answer. And isn't that always what we see in our culture? Isn't that what Nehemiah sees coming from these guys? Culture, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? What a stupid question. Why would God make a rock? No, because then the rock would be God. God doesn't ever do anything that would, that would jeopardize his glory. So no, you're, no. So God can't. It's not about can't, it's he won't. Because he's God, he's the rock. He doesn't need to make another one. He calls himself the rock. He goes on and it says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. So now they go back and ask him another question. They're constantly trying to trap him. And Jesus continues to give them very simple biblical answers. He continues to give them like, here it is, and walk away. He doesn't try to justify. He doesn't run around in circles. He just says, here it is. And we have lost that a lot as a culture. And Nehemiah is the same way. He gives those kind of answers. In Nehemiah 6, it says, so I sent messengers. He sent messengers to Sanballat to Tobiah, to Jeshurun. He sent messengers saying, hey, look, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal and I gave them the same reply. It is so easy to get distracted by great opportunities, right, in our life sometimes. Does God send us great opportunities? Absolutely. But it is so easy to get distracted by things and think, I'm doing a great, and forget that what you're doing right now as a believer, worshiping him, reading your Bible, walking with him, is greatness. You are great, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. That's what Easter's about. You are a saint. You are a priest. And it's like, I'm not doing enough. i got to be bigger and better. No, you don't. Just be faithful where you are and trust God for the next step. And when we do that, God will open opportunities. And yes, sometimes we take opportunities and they're learning and we fail and we fall down and we get up. And that's the right thing to do. But can I just tell you, so often, unlike Nehemiah, we see, oh, my enemies, they like me now. Oh, I'll go talk to them. Oh, now I can go do this and do that. And we're spread out all over the place and we end up losing our marriage. We end up losing our children. We end up losing the church. 
we end up never making an impact in people's lives because we won't stay someplace long enough to make a difference. And Nehemiah's like, you're not going to distract me from the great work God is trying to do. Our problem is that we buy the world's definition of what a great work is, not God's. The greatest work that God ever did was on the cross and then coming back to life for you and for me. There is no greater work, none. And what he is doing in heaven right now, there is no greater work than what he's building to bring back for those who are his. The Bible is full, 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 full of people who just did great lives that we know nothing about. I always tell people, everybody wants to be a David, nobody wants to be an Obed. Obed was the grandfather of David. Tell me, what did Obed do? Exactly. But everybody, oh, I want to be a David. Really, you want to go up on a rooftop, look for someone that's not your wife, sleep with her, kill her husband, and go through that mess and have the kingdom almost fall apart, have your two sons hate you, go to war, have one of them die and hang in a tree and your general kill it. That's the life you want? Great, be a David. I'd rather be an Obed. Sounds boring. It's not boring. It's faithfulness. And in the midst of trying to do great things, we can lose sight. Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, the worst, most depressing book in Scripture when you read it. It is like there's, I mean, it ends with, well, good luck, fear God and die. Like, that's the end of the book. The wisest, richest greatest, had every woman, everything his heart could desire, came to the end of his life and probably was like, man, I just wish I would have been like my grandpa or my great-grandpa. It doesn't mean God doesn't ask us to do great things. It's just he looks and he sees and he says, I'm not going to be distracted. Sambalot sent me this same message a fifth time by his aide who had an open letter in his hand and it was written. And it is reported among the, the nations and Jeshurun agrees so now I've, I've rallied some people against you that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason you're building the wall. According to these reports, you're to become their king. So now Facebook's going nuts on these guys. Twitter's blowing up about, you know, Nehemiah and the Jews. Then it says, and have even set up prophets in Jerusalem to pro proclaim on your behalf. There is a king in Judah. There is a king in Judah. It's God. And Nehemiah knows that, which is why he's not trying to get a new king in Judah. Do you remember when, when, the, when the Israelites wanted a king, what God told them? He told them, I don't want you to have a king. You don't want a king. It won't go well with you with a king. Please, don't get a king. Let me be your king. And they said, no, we want a king. He said, okay, fine, have a king. See, God will give us what we want to teach us to draw us to himself. And in the same, they say there is a king. And Nehemiah's like, no, the king is Zerk out of Xerxes. I got sent from him, I'm going back to him. I'm not trying to establish a kingdom here. I'm waiting for my king to come back and overthrow our Xerxes. That's not my call. I'm just gonna submit. I'm gonna do what God's asked me to do. I'm gonna do what the king allows me to do. This is my life. He says, the rumors will be heard by the king. So let's, confer together. He, he looks and he says, these rumors are going to be heard. You better be scared because when the authorities hear about it, they're coming in. 
Matt, you better be careful what you preach on. You better be careful those passages that are hard, that may, may look kind of bad, and you, you don't preach on those because, you know, then the government might come in and you might get kicked out of the banneker and you gotta be... I'm just walking through the Bible, folks. That's all I'm gonna do. Because this is who God is, and this is his heart for me and for you and for the world. Luke 23, it says this. Their whole assembly, this is right after the passage where circumstance where Jesus was confronted, their whole assembly rose up and brought Jesus before Pontius Pilate. This is when he was on trial before his death. They began to accuse him just like they did here, saying, we found this man subverting our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar. Did he oppose payment to taxes? No, he said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. He said, pay your taxes. But see, that's what people do. They twist our words. That's all that's been done for the last 16 years in our country with politics. Everybody's twisting everything, and nobody will just speak the truth and let it lay. Over and over, and we're too lazy to find out what was really said. We just believe it. Oh, they said that. Oh, I'm going to repost that. Oh, that's terrible. Because I like that guy, but I hate this guy. Find the truth. Don't just take an accusation. Then it says... And saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. This is the same accusation thousands of years later that Sanballat, Tobiah, and Jeshurun were making against Nehemiah. It's the same exact accusations and story. Saint doesn't have any new material. He doesn't. It's just the same old material and we keep falling for it. Then he answered. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? (laughs) He answered him. Yep, you've said it. Not not really an answer. (laughs) No, you just said I'm the king of the Jews. You're a Roman authority over this promise, which means you just declared that I'm the king of the Jews. Thank you very much. I've been trying to get people to do that ever since I've been walking the earth. Praise the Lord. That's exactly what he says. He doesn't try to justify. He just says, yep, it's as you say. Jump in Nehemiah, and then it says, then I replied to him, there is nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You're inventing them in your own mind. For they were all trying to intimidate us, saying they will become discouraged in the work, and it will never be finished. But now my God strengthened me. Again, Nehemiah asked for strength. In Luke 23, 24, Pilate then told the chief priests in the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. I I, I don't know how to charge him. He's not done anything. He's done nothing but help and serve. And like, he looked at me and said, it's as you said. He's not declaring he's God. He's like crazy. He goes on and says in Nehemiah, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Methebel, who was restricted to his house. He said, let us meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let us shut the temple doors because they're coming to kill you, Nehemiah. They're coming to kill you tonight. But I said, should a man like me run away? They were coming to kill Jesus in the night. Jesus didn't run away. Peter took out a sword and chopped off a guy's ear. Jesus stuck it back on his head. I'm not running away from the fight. I'm not running away from what God has called me to. It says, but I said, should I run away? How can I enter the temple and live? I will not go there. Nehemiah knew I'm not the one to enter the temple and save myself. God is. And that's what Jesus did on our behalf. He goes on and he says, I realized that God had not sent him, in other words, these guys, this prophet, 
because of the prophecy he spoke against me. Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Can I just tell you there are a lot of hired people out there. The Bible says there are hired shepherds and when the going gets tough, they run. And we keep buying it and we keep listening to them. Nehemiah is like, I, I'm not doing what God says not to do. I'm not going into the temple. That's for the priests. I'm not a priest. I'm a slave. I'm just a servant. That, no. But you'll be safe and not doing it. Look in Matthew 16. Jesus had been teaching and finally he comes to the point where he makes clear what his mission and purpose is just like Nehemiah does here. From then on, Jesus began to point out to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, scribes, those people that just accused him, be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. But Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, any, disciples, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Quit hiding out in the temple and get on the wall to fight. It's the same story. Jesus is looking and saying, I, I'm not going to hide out. I've got a mission to complete and, comp and, and accomplish. And he's going to do it. And Peter's like, I'm going to never let that happen. And she's, no, Peter. That's you wanting me to stay with you. That's you wanting what you want. That's not you asking what I want or what my father wants. He goes on, he says this in Nehemiah. So he was hired so that I would be intimidated. Do as he suggested. Sin and get a bad reputation in order that they could discredit me. Because if he went into the temple and then it was said, Nehemiah went into the temple and he's not a priest and oh look, he's not righteous and they got it. And that's how the enemy gets us. It's just a simple thing. He gets us afraid and oh look out, run away. Oh, you gotta protect yourself. Protect your kingdom, protect what you've got. It's gonna be, and we find ourselves in the middle of sin after sin after sin going, what happened? Then Nehemiah says, my God, remember Tobiah and Sambalot for what they have done. Also, Nodiah, the prophetess, and the other prophetess who wanted to intimidate me. He looks and he says, God, please bring justice. Can I just tell you, we hear that constantly in our culture, but we don't really want it. See, what we want, I want justice for all those folks, and I want mercy for me and the people I like. I don't want justice for me and mercy for everybody else. I don't, want, I don't want mercy for those people that should have justice, in my mind. Here, he's looking and he's like, God, I just want your justice to reign. I want you to bring justice. And Christ's death paid the price for what we justly deserve. See, when you're forgiven of your sins, God doesn't like forget about them. Jesus looks at his father and says, beat me, please, for what they've done. I'll take that for them. I'll die again today. I'll lay down. I'm in heaven on your behalf praying for you, interceding so that the wrath of God, when he sees sin and wants to destroy it, Jesus is standing saying, no, I cover them. Their justice is on me, Lord. Father. 
It's not we get a pass. Grace isn't a pass. Grace is the idea that Jesus is looking and saying, tell people about me. Tell them about my mercy, my grace, and my justice. Let them know how great it is to know me and to be separated from the wrath of God because of what I've done. Not you just get a pass. Nehemiah goes on and says, the wall was completed in 52 days. I showed you a picture of the wall, right? How huge it was and how completely in ruins and rubble it was. 52 days they rebuilt the wall. This is amazing. And then it says, on the 25th day on the month of Elul. Do you know what the month of Elul is? It's Rosh Hashanah. It's the Jewish New Year. They complete the walls just in time to celebrate the newness that God is bringing. Coincidence? I don't think so. God loves to do things according to his calendar so we can see his full glory. That's why Jesus died at Passover, because he's the Passover lamb. It's why he stayed on earth for, for 49 days after Passover, and then the Holy Spirit came. As a, represent, as a representation of Sukkoth in the Old Testament and the feast that was there. It goes on, it says, when all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were now intimidated and lost their confidence for they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. That should like give you chills. I want to be a part of things like this that when I step back and look, I can say there is no way we made that work. There's no plan. There was no church growth plan. There was no book I read. There's nothing. God did that. He made that happen. And when you're a part of something like that, it just, it's amazing. And when you allow God every day to tell you that he's accomplishing in you what you can't accomplish, there's no greater joy or hope in our lives. He goes on, John, and says this, Jesus, he says, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, He said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. It's all been accomplished. It's finished. Can I just ask you to pause for a minute and take that in? When you're tired, when you're exhausted, when it just feels like another day and another day, that there is a God in heaven who says, my work with you for your salvation and your place here is finished. I still have work for you on the earth to do. We're not done yet. I haven't killed you. Brought you home to be with me. But as it relates to the standing that you have before me and the relationship that you have with me, it's finished. There's peace in that that's just like, thank you, Lord. Because every day I wake up and I'm like, it's not finished. The deck's not done. I still got brickwork to do. The car needs struts. (laughs) This person needs help. It's not finished. And God's like, it's finished. And he says, then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. When you fast forward to Matthew 28, the end of the story, they go to look for Jesus' dead body because they think 
it's finished. They think that the plan of God failed, that Jesus has died, and when they come back, it says, he is not here, for he has been resurrected, just as he said. You thought it was done. You were, you're in mourning and brokenness, like Nehemiah was mourning and breaking, and now 52 days later, actually a little bit longer than that, but when he got to town, he's looking at a completed wall. Now, does God always do that? No, because for about, I don't know, 90 years, there was no completed wall, and people had to be faithful without a completed wall. They had to find God accomplishing his work, being faithful to them, and they didn't get to be a part of the wall building. Sorry, that's God's plan. But they prepared the group to come back and build it, just like Obed prepared David. David prepared Solomon. See, that's what God does. He asks us to just... Serve him to to say, let me accomplish through you what I want to accomplish in simple ways and see what I do with that. Quit looking at what the world says and all the trappings and things they want and just look to me for what my will and my ways are. He goes on, Nehemiah says, during those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them for many in Judah were bound by oath to him. Many of them, it says here, he was a son-in-law of Sekaniah, son of Ara, and his son, Johanahan, had married the daughter of Meshalem, son of Berkiah. These nobles kept mentioning Tobiah's good deeds to me as they reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Can I just tell you right now, it doesn't matter how good you are, you are going to perish if you do not know Jesus Christ. The Bible says you will be put in, we'll see in a minute, in the lake of fire if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. I didn't write the book. That's God's book. If you don't like the book, then don't worship this God. Find another one. Nehemiah recognizes that these people have all these side partnerships with Tobiah, and Tobiah's manipulating, and he's doing things, and they keep looking at him. Oh, but he's a good person. I see this all the time in relationships. People will be dating someone. Oh, but he's a good person. Is he a believer? Does he know Jesus? Does he love the Lord? Is he going to lead you to love the Lord? Is he going to lead you to love the church? Is he going to lead you to surrender your life more to Jesus? No, but he's a good person. He's not a good person if he doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't have the power to be good. Now, does he do moral things? Of course. You want to know why we do moral things? Because it kind of goes better for us in life when we do moral things. Go rob a bank today. See how that goes for you. Probably won't go too well if you get out alive. Work a job, make a deposit in a bank, go to the bank, they're not open today, but the next day, and ask for your money out, and you know what they'll do? They will smile at you happily and say, here's your money, thank you very much. One is moral, one is immoral. (laughs) So people do moral, not because they love God, because it's they're, they're excited about what God's doing. They do moral because they just don't want to die and they want to use people. And if I'm moral, I can use more people than if I'm immoral. And we keep getting trapped by this idea, well, he's a good person. Eh, eh. Be careful. And then they reported my words. In other words, they're trying to go behind the scenes and now Nehemiah's got all this back talk and everybody's talking about him and behind his back. It happens in church all the time, constantly. happens in families all the time. When the wall had been rebuilt and I had the doors installed, the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. Nehemiah is going back to the Old Testament. 
now that they have the walls built and they have everything done, Nehemiah says, we need to obey the rest of the word of God. We are in a position now where we should be obeying him. There's nothing, we're protected. We've got to get serious about walking with God. And so he goes back to the Old Testament. He says, we need to bring back the priesthood. We've got to get them in their right roles because the different priestly families had roles. They were the singers. They were the gatekeepers. They were the sacrifice, all these things. And he appointed them. Then I put my brother Hanani in charge of Jerusalem. That's the guy that came and gave him the report. Along with Hananiah, commander of the fortress, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. Everybody else wants in with Tobiah. Nehemiah's looking for men surrendered to God. Everybody else is looking, how can I get in with the right politics and get in with people and kind of make sure I'm in the right networks and people and you know, get Nehemiah's like, I'm just looking for people who fear God. That's it. And I'll put them in charge. I'll, te- I'll train them, I'll teach them, we'll figure it out. That's what I'm looking for. Don't really care about the rest. It says, I said to them, do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot and let the doors be shut and securely fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some at their homes. He looks and he says, look, they're gonna come for us. When we start getting the worship going and the smoke's going up and they know that like we're protected, it's not like they're going to go, oh, that's so nice. They're going to come after us even harder. And we've got to be prepared. Jesus said it this way, your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. The city's finished. Jesus is finishing the city of God in heaven and Revelation says it's going to come down out of heaven and be placed on the earth. Just like Nehemiah is trying to finish this city and get people back to worshiping God fully, that's the picture that Jesus does for us. Nehemiah goes on, it says the city was large and spacious but there were few people in it and no houses had been built yet. When Jesus died on the cross, that's where he was. He went, when he ascended to heaven, there were few people, like, He's, he's waiting for, the reason he hasn't come back yet is because he thinks there's still too few people in heaven, so he's giving us time to repent. That's why Jesus hasn't come back yet. And then it says, then I put my God, or yet then my God put into my mind to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. Again, this is the book of life. I found the genealogical record of those who came back first, and I found the following written in it. These are the people of the province who went up among the captive exiles, deported by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Each of them returned to Jerusalem and Judea to his own town. Nehemiah is now going deep into inspecting who people really are, what they're really about, what, what, what does God say about these people, and he's reading what? words written by authorities. That's what the Bible is. He's going back and reading the scriptures, looking at the genealogical records. We read the genealogy, ah, I can't talk. We read the genealogy records and we're like, oh gosh, okay, yeah, uh-huh. Oh, look, a good story. Oh goodness, another list of names. Nehemiah's like going through it like a fine-tooth comb. Because he's like, God has a plan in people's lives and it's typically connected and I want to know those connections and I He wants to honor the Lord even with genealogy. Goes on, it says, the number of the Israelites' men, I'm gonna jump over some of this. So the number of the Israelite men, the priests included, he looked at the Levites, he looked at the singers, he looked at the gatekeepers, he named the temple servants, the descendants of Solomon's servants. And then he even got to the following. 
the ones that were unable to prove that their family and ancestors were Israelite. These searched for their entries to the genealogical records, but they could not be found. So they were disqualified from the priesthood. The Bible says if we do not know Jesus Christ, we will be disqualified from his priesthood in heaven. He calls us priests. We believe the priesthood of believers, that when you become a believer, he then assigns you the role to be a priest in the world, to go out and make your life a sacrifice to others so that they can know him. That's what the priesthood was in the Old Testament. Nehemiah says they're disqualified. Revelation 20.15 says, and anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Is your name written in the book of life? Have you asked God, God, I want to be yours? You have to remember, also in the genealogical record, it wasn't Israel, listen, it wasn't Israelite by birth necessarily. It was also Israelite by adoption and choice because Ruth, the Moabite, is mentioned in the genealogical records. And so are a bunch of other people that weren't Jews. God just said, if you want to serve me, I'll let you, if you want to surrender, you can be mine. That was in the Old Testament just as much as the New Testament. There were different rules for them than for the Israelites in the Old Testament. Now we're all under the same rules. The governor ordered them not to eat the most holy things until there was a priest who could consult the Urman, Urim and Thummim. Thank you. Hebrews, what does it say? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. Remember what Jesus' name means? It means Yahweh who saves, who is the son of Yahweh. That's what, it, that's what that means right there. Let us hold fast to the confession. That's what communion is. It's a confession. We're confessing the reality of our need to lay down our life and to take his life. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet he never sinned without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Wow, I love that passage. Nehemiah says we've got to get priests that can figure this out. The New Testament says we have a high priest that's got it all figured out. That there's no question of our ancestry. There's no question of our right to be in the land, to be, to be serving him, not because of what we've accomplished, but by what God has accomplished. What he did as our high priest, we could never do for ourselves. No earthly priest could do what the priest Jesus did. Man, that, that just makes me like, thank you. Goes on in Nehemiah as we wrap up. It says, some of the family leaders gave to this project of getting the worship things ready to go, right? They didn't have anything to do the right worship, so they had to buy the supplies they needed to have worship. They had to get things ready. 
said the governor gave a thousand gold coins, 50 bowls, and 530 priestly garments to the treasury. Some of the family leaders gave 20,000 gold coins and 2,200 silver minas to the treasury for the project. The rest of the people gave 20,000 gold coins, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. So the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, temple singers, some of the people, temple servants, and all Israel settled in their towns when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns. All the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, remember, that's Rosh Hashanah. This is the Jewish New Year. They are blowing shofars all around the nation. The entire Persian Empire is probably hearing these shofars blow. They're big ram horns. And they blow them on Rosh Hashanah. The Bible says that when Jesus comes back, the ram horns, the trumpets are going to announce his coming. This is announcing that God has accomplished his work. Then it says, they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. And on that first day of the seventh month, to celebrate the new year, to celebrate what God wanted to do, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding. They longed to hear the word of God. They they knew that they had not heard God's word. They'd been in Babylon and Persia for 70 years. His word barely got read because they were foreigners. And now they're in their land. They're in the place that God said he would bring them back to. He's fulfilling all the prophets, Jeremiah, Haggai, all the prophets that had said this was going to happen is happening. And now they're reading the words of those prophets and saying, our God accomplished this. This wasn't us. This was him. How amazing. And the people are rejoicing in the midst of a war around them, in the midst of being slaves in their culture. They're still not free They don't care. I'm going to worship. I don't care what circumstances I'm in. We're going to leverage our resources. I don't care if I don't have the resources that everybody else has. I'm going to do what God says to do. And they are stoked about this. They're asking for it. And people are coming and they want to listen. They want to understand. This hasn't happened for like 90 years. (laughs) Revelation says this. As many as I love, Jesus says, I rebuke and discipline. Remember, the people were being rebuked and disciplined by God because of their disobedience. They were in slavery and captivity for 70 years, not because he was mad, I'm going to get you, but because he had no other way to get their hearts than to humble them. He knew that fathers would keep teaching kids bad things unless the fathers were gone and new fathers were instituted and unless they got to his word and surrendered. He knew that. So be committed and repent. Listen, Jesus says. This is Jesus speaking. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice like they heard it here when they were listening to the word and opens the door, I will come to him and have dinner with him and he with me. That's communion. Communion isn't bread and wine. It symbolized an entire meal, the Passover Seder meal. This is just a symbol of that meal that Jesus says he will serve and and celebrate with us one day. And he says, my throne, he goes on, he says, 
the victor, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne. Can you imagine getting to heaven and Jesus is like, come here, come here, sit down. Sit in this throne. Awesome, isn't it? <laughs> That's because we know each other. It's because I love you. It's because you've surrendered. Isn't this great? Now I got some stuff for you I want you to do up here. So go out and do it. Okay. That's the heart of our God. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne, anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to God's people. And just like in Nehemiah's day, listen to what God is saying and do what he asks. It's worth it. And communion is that moment. Easter is that moment when everything seems crazy, when it all seems like it's falling apart. It's the moment that we remember what God has accomplished and we go to the communion table and we say, God, I can't save myself, but your body and your blood does. I can't do it, but you do. It's the moment that we're just reminded that he's forgiven us, that he has the right to our body because he gave his body and we traded. That's what communion is. If you're not there in your life right now, take a moment and get there before you take communion. Don't take communion lightly as this thing, oh, it's just, you know. Take a moment. Also, don't sit there in guilt and think, I'm not worthy to take communion. You're not worthy. I'm not either. He accomplished us to be able to sit at that table with him, not me. And so if you know you're not worthy, tell him you're not worthy and go to the table and say, God, I am not worthy, but you are, thank you, and rejoice and celebrate and worship him. I'm gonna pray. And after I'm done praying, we're gonna take a moment to take communion. There's a gluten-free communion table right over here. I want you to take a moment and I want you to pray before God. I want you to ask yourself, is your heart like the heart of Nehemiah and Jesus that we read about? Maybe your heart isn't there, but you want it to be. Then great. Ask God to accomplish that in you. Say, God, I can't do this, but you can. Believe in him for what he can build and rebuild in your life. And go to the communion table and celebrate this Easter that there is new life for this idiot dying person in this body that's passing away. And I have confidence for the rest of my life. And just like the shofar blows, God says, I... I am announcing with communion that you are mine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be with you this morning. Thank you that you have come and made your presence with us, not because of what we've done, because we built some nice building or we organized things well. Or, but Lord, you come because you say we're two or more gathered in your name, your presence. So, Lord, we thank you for your presence in our midst. We praise you for your presence that you, throughout all of human history, have been, continued to be present in people's lives like us that don't deserve it. That you, can, you came as a man and humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we could be present with you. Lord, I thank you for the gift of communion. I pray that if anyone here 
doesn't know you. They haven't surrendered their life to you. They haven't picked up their cross and made that trade with you to say, I'm done. I just want you. I want you to accomplish, God. I surrender. Lord, I pray today would be the day that they say that to you. And when they go to that communion table, they would remember that it is your blood, your body that was paid for them. And they are making the greatest exchange they could ever make. And for those of us who are believers, like Nehemiah talking to the people, I pray that you would cause us to take a moment. You'd cause us to be humbled and to pause. And like Nehemiah, and like Jesus on the cross, to say it is finished. And that we'll take this meal and remind ourselves that this is just a picture of what someday will be and remind ourselves that we've been left here because we have the task that Nehemiah had. We have the task that you had, Jesus, that as long as we have breath in these earthly bodies, we are to make you known. We are to use it for your glory, to serve people, so that they could see what you, God, have accomplished. We thank you and we pray all this in your name.